0: If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, we're in Mark and we're ranking our way through the Gospel of Mark. He is relentless in presenting to us Jesus Christ. And we are uh, eager to see how he does it this morning. It's a quote that's attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, that no one is above the law. I think he actually said no man is above the law, but he meant human person, right? So no one is above the law. This is A true of you and me, I think. We're all kind of in the same boat. All of us are under the law. And when I say the law, I mean the law of God. There are rules to follow. And we track back on the authority for the rules that we follow. We do track back into the Bible, from the Bible to God. It's easy sometimes to see this as one of the heart's of Christianity, we come to church to learn about God, of his law, and so that means how I'm supposed to act to, in parenting or marriage or life. Some things you just have to do. No one is above the law. What's creeping in as I say that and we start to go down this line, it starts to kind of think through that there's a certain take on church for you and me, and the take is that we, well really in all of Christianity, it's, that the broad sweep of what Jesus Christ has done, that's great and good, but people need more commitment. We need a more fine-grained approach to what to do. I feel like I'm missing out on possible blessing, on a better life, on a life well lived, if I don't get more grainy about how to act and what to do. And not even, like, really, if you start to talk about why people come to church, why are you here today? You have different reasons people start to come up with. Sometimes it's an intellectual reason, like I'm going to learn something new about Jesus. The trouble with that is, that there's like ten thousand podcasts and twenty million videos you can watch anytime time to learn lots of good things. You'll say, "Well, I come to church to serve, man. I come to I come to get to serve, and that's awesome." But there are a million nonprofits that will take your service, time, and money. You say, I come kind of for a life hack. You know, this idea that I'm going to learn how, how, how to apply things so that I can do better and, and, and be stronger. There's this thing called the Christian bookstore. The shelves are filled. Christian living. The making of books, there's no end, right? So, so, so these things start to get in me. Why? Why are we here? What are we doing I haven't mentioned something. Something called worship. Something called receiving Jesus. Something about the reality of who he is. Beware, precious family, that we might not miss Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is above the law. And that has incredible impact and meaning for our lives, that our Savior is above, not under. I want to talk to you about that from Mark today. This is only the second chapter of Mark, right? We're only in Mark chapter 2, and already, man, Jesus is blazing. Already we're seeing opposition to Jesus, people pushing back on this message that Jesus has, the Son of God. About what life is even about and who he is and why are we here and, and these interactions that he starts to have. I, I just, I hope you don't dismiss them too quickly as outrageous pushbacks by these silly Pharisees. Because too often, when you look at why they're doing it, it's the reactions we have against Jesus. They're trying to evaluate whether Jesus is doing things rightly. Does he obey rightly? Does he follow the right practices to fit Jesus into the law? To fit Jesus into their story? When perhaps it's about fitting the story into Jesus. What does that mean? So we're looking at fasting today. We're looking at the Sabbath today. These are like Christian hot topics, kind of. Worth looking at how Jesus treated them, what's going on. Above the law, so we're going to pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and want to look, here we go. Our first piece to look at is with fasting. Jesus changes the why of what we do. Verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I don't know how much you know of fasting. It's not necessarily in vogue these days, but people do some all the time. In fact, earlier in the service, we were talking about fasting a little bit, and someone told me they fasted every single day from 9 p.m. until 6 in the morning. And then they broke their fast. It's called breakfast. (laughs) Break fast. Look at me go. That's not really the point here, right? That's not what we're talking about, nor what they were doing. It's one of the three main pillars of Judaism. Fasting, along with prayer, and almsgiving. Only one fast was required of the Jewish people. That was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But, but really through time, they, they were fasting a lot. And then the fasting for us for three main reasons that people bring up. One was it was a time of national crisis, like something horrible was happening to the nation. Everyone fast. Kind of like Jonah and Nineveh, if you remember back in Jonah. Another thing was if some disaster or crisis had happened to a group of people, a big earthquake or something horrible. And then finally, if something personal, some personal reason that you were in crisis or cut to the heart, it's a part of piety. It's associated with prayer. It's often around some difficulty. You were struck not to rejoice but to be somber and to not eat. Even though it was a legal requirement only in one day, a whole year, it'd become in Jesus' day really a prerequisite of religious commitment. Right. So the Pharisees fasted twice a week on the second and fifth day of the week. That kind of idea. To show they're really committed, you know, because fasting is not giving in to the flesh. It's, it's it's depriving your body of things that otherwise it would need. And, and there's a piece of that that's saying, hey, something's more important to me than eating. And it's fasting. Fasting is showing that I'm really committed to God. So honestly, it seemed like that today by a lot of people. I don't know if you fast. But you might, you might take times or things that you don't do. It says, is this a deeper expression of piety? And so they're asking Jesus, hey, wait a minute. John's guys are doing this. The Pharisees are doing this. How come your guys are not uh, fasting? Verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I'm here, says Jesus. I mean, literally, you could paraphrase this, right? It's like, if I'm around, how can you do anything but party? That's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, hey, I'm here, and and if I'm here, I'm the party. It's a wedding feast. The wedding feast was the biggest feast they had. It was a time to put cares aside and join in and eat and relax and, and be a part of this wonderful celebration. And Jesus' like, I'm here. I'm telling you, he says, this is the time of rejoicing. You shouldn't miss it. There's a picture here of God who is the bridegroom of Israel, God the Father in the Old Testament, as you got to see that. So Jesus here, there's a deity claim going on. But Jesus is saying at this time when he was there, no one should be fasting. You should be screaming in awe and awe wonder. You should be laughing and amazed. You should be happy and laying the books aside and having some punch. I don't know what's in the punch, but you should have some. Because Jesus, is that amazing? No sadness in this for you, Jesus says. Rejoicing is here because I made it. All of the Old Testament pointing forward to me. Everything saying, hey, there's a coming Savior. And guess what? I'm here. The days will come, Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. See, he's not saying you're always going to be rejoicing every moment. Just, hey, Jesus came, and therefore we're paced on the smiles, and there we go. There's going to be time, he says, when my disciples, my guys, they're going to be struck to the heart. Right? And he points to when the bridegroom is taken away from them, they'll fast. And that, what day is that? Well, Jesus got betrayed. Who ran away from Jesus and didn't support him? His guys think they were like, let's go party? Jesus is going on a cross? No. There are seasons, right? They got struck to the heart when Jesus was going to be taken and killed. Then they'll fast. They'll get struck to the heart when they come face to face with their own betrayal and abandonment of the Savior. It's really a case of what's central as you think of this fasting thing, isn't it? And what practice you're going to have about it there's a, there's two pathways there's two basic paradigms one is one is a law paradigm that god's great and good law his commandments for living to keep yourself right and jesus comes and shows the very best way to 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 do that to keep yourself right to do the law the best or this the second pathway that might be here to think about for you is that it's about Jesus. And the law has always been a, a structure to point to Jesus, to, to, to what the Bible says is a guardian. A temporary structure to, to, to say, okay, Jesus is coming, let's keep you within the lines until your Savior can come. He's not coming to show you the best way to keep the law. The law is showing you, hey, let's keep you protected till he gets here. Kind of like a wooden fence, you know? I've got a wooden fence along one side near my house, and it's been there for 20 years. It's been a great fence, but you know it's rotting at the bottom. It's slowly starting to lose its ability to be a good fence. Temporary. Some senses. So I guess what I'm saying is don't think you and I like we're not like these Pharisees. We want to make a system where we're still in the middle and Jesus is saving you and me so that we can be good cogs in the machine. Producing good things ourselves. Making our lives count. This becomes for many people the reason why you live. Is you think it's about Jesus as a means to make me a better cog. To make me a more efficient organism. Make me leaner, meaner, not green. I think that was the, that was some football team in the 80s, the lean green machine. But that's just something that means, oh, they're focused and they're, they're, they're ready to go. And that, so that's what Jesus is doing. Is Jesus an improvement? Life giver to make us useful, to make us law doers, to make us more loving, to make us more in tune with the purpose we were made to. But Jesus has a whole nother idea. He says, you know what? The way you're thinking, folks, won't fly. He's totally different. Look, look, look. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now if you're a reader and you just go through, they go, Why, why is he sticking that there? What, what? I don't understand. What's the connection? The connection is what I just told you, right? That they're seeing Jesus, they're evaluating Jesus' message as a how does it fit in the scope of what I think is the important thing, which is me becoming a more efficient cog in the machine of God, a lawkeeper. Jesus is a patch to keep the law going well, and Jesus says, it's not gonna work, guys. The patch tears. You have a worse hole. It doesn't work. What you need is a whole new garment. Jesus is the new wine. He bursts the old skins. You need a new whole wine skin, a whole new container. No fixing the old, the old ice box that you put ice in. It's time to buy a refrigerator. Practically what he's saying, it's not going to work to hold traditional values and moral behavior and the ways we can use Jesus to try and make life be in the same mold as it's always been. We are about something new. We cannot learn all the good rules and then fit Jesus into them. Jesus stands alone. question that's posed by the image of the wedding feast and the, these two tiny little parables is not whether the disciples will like sewing a new patch on an old garment or filling an old container make room for Jesus and their already full agenda they're already full lives the question is whether they'll forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration Whether they'll become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus right something new okay this influences me i should influence you because i think well okay fasting and the question i want answered is how often do i need to fast and when is it good to fast and how should it be a part of my daily christian routine and 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 that's not what jesus is talking about even a little bit jesus comes and says wait life's about me Something new is happening. It's a different why to what you do. And it's a reflection of, is Jesus Christ my all? Do I see that I'm receiving everything from him? That there's something special about Jesus. So he comes in and he begins to highlight this purpose. He begins to come in and, and talk about changing the frame then of how we see the rules of life. The way that we live. The purpose of the law. One Sabbath, um, Mark writes, he was going through the grain fields. Jesus was, and and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Oh, this is a problem! Stealing grain! Like, 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 would you ever do this? Like, I don't know. It's a big bad thing in my neighborhood. If you walk down the street and my neighbors have some cool flowers, (laughs) I bring my scissors. One time, (laughs) we'll just snip a few. That'd be terrible, right? That's not the issue. Actually, in the law, it was totally okay. You could, if you walk by a field, you could have some of the grain with your hands. You could pick it up. You could eat it. That's not the issue. The, the Exodus says you can do it. The issue is it's not okay on the Sabbath. You're going to miss the depth of this if you think these guys are just being weird. To us every day is like another day, and so we're not big on days a lot of times, but the Sabbath defined their community. It was the thing. Two observances above all defined the Jewish people, God's people, and set them apart from the nations. One of them, you can guess it, circumcision. But you don't you go don't flouting lie. circumcision. The other one, the Sabbath. They did something special. They they took the Sabbath and they didn't work. It extended from sunset on Friday until sunset on Saturday. It was a big deal of national identity under God. It was part of the story. So the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Not lawful, they were having a few handfuls of something to snack on. Not lawful because it was the Sabbath. The texts that we have, they preserve the most rigorous Sabbath regulations in Judaism, which you couldn't carry children, you couldn't give help to birthing animals, you couldn't get an animal that had fallen into a pit according to their regulations. Say, so, well those guys were too tight. Yeah, they had 39 classes of work that you couldn't do. Number three on the list is reaping. Reaping means picking things to eat that's in the field. So, so you say, you look here, might accept, might be going on and say, well, it's, it's not foolishness. There's a practicality to it. It's like, where's the line? And we get this all the time. Don't think you're not here too. Where's the line? Like, can I do this or can I do that? Or kind of where's the line of what I can do and then what I can't do? And and so they laid it out in the Mishnah that the rabbis working through what it means like. And so you could take 1,899 steps, but not 1,900 steps. That's where the line was drawn, where a short walk became a journey. You couldn't take a journey on the Sabbath. practicality, right? Because you're supposed to take a rest on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the rest day and fine, but what does it mean to rest? And and it's a struggle for us because it's a struggle for me because why don't you just tell me what it is I have to do? We see this all over the Bible and all over our own hearts. Things like this, like say, oh, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. A pastor tells a story once about how somebody came up to him after he was talking about the need to love. And and the Bible so clear you need to love and love and love. Someone came up and said, I I hear that. What you're saying, I think, is like last week, um, someone I knew, they came in first in the the contest I was in. And I came in 15th. And you're telling me I have to rejoice just like I was the winner um, for them. I was like, oh. You heard my message. This is so good. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, rejoice. Love your neighbor. She says, "Okay, then I need real specifics here. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who's the person I have to rejoice for? Because this is going to be super hard. How many and what? Looks, can I draw? How many blocks around my house am I responsible for to try and really be kind to people? How much do I really have to do? What, what does it look like to really love somebody really well? Because because I want to take it seriously. I don't want to just say yeah, love, love, and not love." You saw the problem, right? We have this need to try and lay it out with lines so that we can say, what did you want to say? I did it. I did it. And looking at the Bible this way, looking at at, at the rules this way, to say I'm going to figure out how I'm going to do it, and so and so, if you're going to tell me love, then you got to tell me how I do it, so I get the check that it got accomplished. That's what's going on. These guys we've settled, we've settled that our take on what the Bible means is that it's a it's this layout of things and, and and your disciples aren't doing it, Jesus. This speaks very ill of you. No man is above the law. Jesus' response is interesting. Because Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. If you're like me at all, you say, yeah, kind of vaguely remember that. It's in Samuel, I think. Then if you're like me and you go look it up and start reading, you say, oh, there's a big textual problem because really the high priest when David came wasn't Abiathar, it was Ahimelech and is there a problem here in the text? What's going on? And you start going down a pathway that misses what Jesus said at all. Why does he say that? This is God talking. What did he say? He said, I remember the time when David went and ate. I know what I would have said if I was them. I know if I was Jesus and they said, okay, here's the 39 classes of work and your, your disciples are plucking some grains. I would have said, you guys are interpreting it wrong. That's not work. Come on. They're not really, they're not really reaping. They don't have a sickle. They're not out there working and breaking the Sabbath. They're not breaking the Sabbath. I would have gone there. I would have said, you silly Pharisees with 39 ways to work. There's really only 38. Or 22. Or 17 and a half. Or something. I would have pointed out that what we normally do, which is say the Pharisees are, we're just too picky. What does Jesus do? Well, did you hear of David? That, that ought to make you go, what? David broke the law. Right? Can I say that? Can I say that he entered the house of God in the tabernacle of Abiathar, the high priest and ate the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? Was David a priest? No. But he was a king. So. So you got to, You got to, What? Wait a minute. Is Jesus into situational ethics? No, what Jesus is doing is poking these guys and poking you and me. You're thinking wrongly of the rules. You're thinking wrongly of obedience and of me, says Jesus. The real issue is who is Jesus? Right? Jesus doesn't raise the incident in order to plead for a Sabbath exception to his hungry disciples. He cites David's violation of the Torah, not as an excuse for his action, but as a precedent. He makes the allusion to David. He's inviting a comparison between him and David. Who is Jesus? He's the king in the line of David who got the Davidic covenant. First Samuel seven, Second right? Samuel seven, where you have actually God promising him that you'll forever have a someone on your throne, forever king. And so here's Jesus, the forever king, and he's here, and he says, "Hey, yeah, look, that was even pointing to me, wasn't it? Good catch, guys." And he says to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." See, see, Jesus doesn't raise this to plead a special exception. He's citing it, right? And then he's saying these really important things. Number one is the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Boy, if you could get this in your heart, you and me, we weren't made to be law keepers like that's our purpose. Right? There's not some big Sabbath purpose that God has for you. That somehow what what he really needs you to do is to get with the program so that you do the Sabbath. Because he's, he's looking for the Sabbath to get fulfilled. Well, God is hoping that enough people will come along and do the Sabbath. And that's the purpose of your life. Jesus is saying, what? It's the other way around. The laws were made for you, human For people, not just Jewish people, by the way, this is amazing because the Sabbath was given to Israel. He says the Sabbath is for human beings. All people. The idea of rest. You need it. And we hard to realize that much of God's law is this way. It's for things that we need, you and I. We need rest, don't we? God didn't need rest when he established the Sabbath. He rested from his work, but it's not like he was tired. We need it. We're not checking a box to keep a deity happy. We're we're thinking about this importance for you and me how we have a God who refills the empty, restores the broken, regenerates the drained. Rest. And, and then this statement, even deeper, therefore the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the main point. Jesus is over the law, right? I'm tempted to take this as, well, Well, okay, that means Jesus can decide what's enforceable and what's not. But really, it's, it's deeper than that. The statement isn't Jesus saying, I have authority from God. Take my interpretation and not someone else's. That would keep Jesus under There's this eternal thing out there that's really your purpose. And Jesus will tell you the best way to interpret that eternal thing. You're getting it wrong. Jesus is over that thing. He is. He actually isn't saying I'm Lord over the Sabbath. He is saying he's Lord even of the Sabbath. I am even the Lord of rest. I have Sabbathness. That's very close to the word for shalom, for peace. Jesus is our rest, right? And we see it in other places. We see it in Hebrews. We see it in Matthew where Jesus says, oh, come to me, you who are, who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The closest thought for you and me is that we're at peace with what's been done. Not not getting over tiredness, but being at peace with the work of Christ for us. Satisfied. This one day in seven, it's an image of the deep peace and the work of God in Christ for us. Did you see? Jesus isn't saying, I have the authority to interpret the law for you. He does. He's saying, I'm over the whole thing. Like Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. Before the law ever came about, there's Abraham giving tithes to this priest who's not even have a family line. He just has a, an eternal life. There's something deeper. It's not just authority, like I'll break what I want and I can because I'm God. It's I am what the law is about. The things you want the law to do, they're found in me. I, I just I, I bring this before you as a precious people in our churches, able to handle this because of the work we've done in all these books of the Bible to try and see where for the law, the law is beautiful, but for most of us as human beings, it becomes a burden to accomplish and measure and honestly it enslaves us on a treadmill or it lets us feel better about ourselves by our action look how useful i'm being and in this paradigm being very detailed is what you need because you need to know the specifics of what pleases god and doesn't you got to get grainy you got to get make sure that x y and z are the things and if you can do these things you can feel good if you don't do them you can feel bad Versus a whole other paradigm where the moral law is a blessing that pushes us to Jesus. It's a humbling thing. It shows us our need for Jesus over and over. If it's doing its job, the main point is the most important. Does it keep you humble? Does it reveal the heart? And that's where Jesus takes this and where Mark puts before us as he finishes this piece. It's... The beginning of chapter three, but it's connected. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Don't miss this. It's really easy to miss, right? You don't miss, oh yeah, they're kind of having questions. Did you see the progression? First, some people asked Jesus. Then the Pharisees had a question for Jesus. Now they're what? I wonder if we can get this guy. The opposition is forming. They're not looking in amazement at his healings and he's healings, hundreds if not thousands of people. They're seeing if they can accuse him for doing something that in their book is against God. Evaluating Jesus, not receiving him. And and, and he said, Jesus did, to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, these people watching him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? Okay, be honest. Come on, try and enter into it with me. Because this is Jesus Christ talking to a group of people who are trying to trap him. And so he says this. What do you think they would say back if they were going to say something? They don't say anything, but I'm, I'm trying to work through what, what is it they would say. And I would say something like this. Jesus, you're twisting. Why are they twisting? Because we're talking about the Sabbath, this guy doesn't have. If withered hand means it's been withered for a long time, probably since he was a little kid. How many Sabbaths had he already been through, and how many days of the week has he been through? Years. Jesus, it's Saturday. Heal him tomorrow. You'll need to do it today. Keep the law of God and do things in order like He does, and then at the right time, heal him. That's fine. We're not against healing. Go ahead. Just do it right. That's what their argument is, right? Doesn't have to happen on the Sabbath. Heal him tomorrow and rest today because God said so. You need to rest, Jesus. But that's the thing, right? God is standing right there. Jesus is God. He's standing right there and he's asking in a piece of time of peace and rest, do I do good or do harm? Well, do good, but by definition, good is don't break the Sabbath. I mean, because what God said is good is good and what good is and and save life or kill. Well, that's really extreme, but that's what they're going to do to Jesus. They're going to kill him. They were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. These Sabbath keepers, rule followers, keep the laws away to good. They have nothing to say. And, and, and so it's really interesting. It perks my ears. It should perk yours. God in Christ becomes angry. Jesus never sins when he's angry. There's reasons he's angry, and they are good reasons. You can be angry and not sin, and Jesus does. Because they're following the law, but they're missing the heart. Right? Is that okay to say? The law doesn't bring a soft heart. It brings a hard heart. The law gives you a framework to evaluate yourself and other people, and when they don't match what you think, you will judge This is what judgment leads to because evaluation leads this way. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. This is the result of Jesus understood by those on both sides because these were opposite sides of the spectrum in the day. The Pharisees are the religious traditionalists. They're keeping the code. They're very concerned about piety and the things that need to happen. The Herodians are the political animals. They're fine with the Greek traditions and things. They just want political power. And here they are. He's not following the rules. And the rules are what's important. This, to me, is what we've been talking about today. These three scenes covering fasting and the Sabbath and our Savior who healed on the Sabbath is who is Jesus? And what does that mean for your living? Why we're here, right? No one is above the law, but Jesus is. From the time of Melchizedek that Hebrews speaks of, to the wonder that Jesus is God who gave the law and therefore has authority. To the reality that Jesus Christ fulfills the law for us. It's a whole other pathway of thinking about how you're going to live. And to think of Jesus this way sometimes it's hard. We think, oh Jesus, he's just a man. But realize in Luke, Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. When did he do that? You realize in Matthew, he, he, says, he says, I kept, speaking to Jerusalem, I kept sending you prophets, but you wouldn't listen. Who does that? God. Jesus, he becomes the center, not the law for you and I. Instead of fitting Jesus into our purpose, I'd like to fulfill the law, see that you're leaving it and looking at Jesus and stopping there, because it's Jesus who forgives you. It's Jesus who, when the law ends for you because you die, resurrects you. He dies, and in his death, you and I, we find our purpose. He lives, and in his life, we find our life. We testify to the only hope there is, that forgiveness has come from Jesus to you. God loved us so much that he came for us. He showed up. He forgave us. And like my friend likes to say, it worked. We gather again to hear again together. We gather again. This is why we're here, to worship together. We gather as a people who need to tell each other the story because all day long you'll hear, no, you need to conform to this pattern or else you're missing your purpose. No, My purpose is receiving forgiveness because I've found it. Receiving life because I've found it. And speaking to you and hearing from you that Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ is above the law. In fact, so far above, he's our savior. Live in that. Let's pray.